Hey everybody and welcome to another week of 28 Days Later. I don't know why I said another week, it just makes it sound like we're counting down in a way that feels dark. We're gonna do that again. What do you mean? Is that what I always say? It sounds say? like we're counting up, like you're welcome for us providing you another week of entertainment. Okay, we'll keep it. Not like, here's one more week until your eventual death. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm your host, Sophie, joined as always by my beautiful co-host, Hannah, (laughs) who has a much more optimistic outlook than I do. Yes. uh, Thank you. It is, I think, um, very important Um, in, as everybody loves to say, these times. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if you have started taking my advice yet, but I've been telling everyone I know to listen to Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon's podcast about the quarantine. Uh, if you are not already listening to it, it's called Staying In with Emily and Kumail. And uh, Emily Gordon has an immuno uh, or is immunocompromised. And so they've had to quarantine in the past when she is like particularly susceptible or has a flare up. And they are doing this whole podcast. Essentially, the idea is any revenue they make from ads will go to support uh, nonprofits that are helping people who are uh, very impacted by the current pandemic. Anyway, they had a conversation, Hannah, about people saying in these weird times or like when things get back to normal or like this is so strange. Mm -hmm. And so what they've been saying is in the weirds, um, which I really like. So they're like talking about what they're doing to stay sane in the weirds, which I like a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because I, I think when, as I I now just say either quarantine or pandemic, like right. like I say during quarantine or before quarantine, um, you know, or pre-post-pandemic, whatever. Right. Um, but before that, I would always say, oh, like how everything is or – you know, everything's so weird now. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I didn't know what to call it. And also for some reason it was like, it felt like we couldn't just outright say like that we're quarantined, like, or like yeah. that it's a pandemic. Like, I don't know. It's weird how it took like a month for me to just, to just get comfortable saying that even. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what your experience has been like. I've been on several Zoom calls today where we've been discussing the experience of uh, going outside if you are going outside. So I'm a person who likes to get outside to go for a walk. And when I do so, like I walk either by myself or with my partner and I wear a mask. Um, But I don't know what your experience has been like in Chicago. Uh, I would say 50% max uh, of people that I see either walking around outside or like when I go to the grocery store are wearing masks, which is kind of startling to me. Really? Yeah. Um, well, in Chicago, it's technically illegal not to now. So it's definitely, um, I think for the most part, I see, I don't know, 80 to 90% masks. Like yeah. I've been uh, quarantining with my boyfriend and in his building, it's also like, uh, I mean, it's not illegal, but it's against building rules to be in any common spaces without a mask on. So also everyone in that building is wearing masks. So um, from my experience, pretty much everything is, everyone's wearing masks. Um, The boys I nanny when I walk with them, like the older one, he thinks it makes him into like a superhero. So he likes to wear his. 
And, and he's the, true. Hey, he's right. He's keeping everyone else safe by wearing a mask. Yeah, and then his uh, younger brother, like, like no chance that he would keep it on his face for more than two seconds. So, uh, but I, I personally, um, like, have yet to put a mask on successfully without immediately burping into it, and then just being immediately hit with the cloud of my own burp, and. <laughs> I, I it's guess like people, Dutch ovening yourself. That's so cruel, Hannah. And like, and people who don't know me outside of this podcast, because I try to, I work very hard to curb my burps while we're recording. But like, people who know me know that in real life, I burp quite, quite loud and quite often. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so, like, burping in my own face has been a, a truly like horrifying. So, like awakening of sorts. <laughs> now, here's what I want to know: When we get to a point where we are no longer quarantined and no longer wearing masks, do you think this is going to have a long term impact on how much you're holding your burps in? Because now you know what other people are going through. I think I won't be holding my burps in, but I will probably try to a- at least angle them away from people. Like I've definitely burped in my boyfriend's face a lot. Um, and he is, he always like, is like, oh, that's disgusting. And I'm like, whatever, you're welcome. And then now I'm like, oh, wow, this is pretty gross. My bad. <laughs> like, wow, I've look always at that been personal like, growth. I've always been like, my burps are impressive and you are lucky to be graced by one of them in your face. <laughs> and then now I'm like, oh, burps do smell bad. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's hilarious. Um. I have had the, uh, I think, very relatable mask experience that um, I'm a person that wears glasses and I'm I'm usually fine, but I will occasionally try to make phone calls while I'm out on a walk with, you know, with my headphones in or to send video messages to some of my friends. And as soon as I'm trying to walk and talk and I'm breathing through my mouth... Mm-hmm. my glasses fog up immediately and then I cannot see where I'm going. I don't take my mask off. I adjust, but it's like, oh, right. I forgot. This is the reason why, you know, when I worked in New Orleans, um, we had to wear masks a lot on site if we were working with various chemicals because it just, you, you were creating a lot of dust or things like that that you didn't want to breathe. Um, and so I have some, familiarity and level of comfort with having a mask on for an extended period of time but I wasn't wearing glasses then so I'm just like oh I forgot this is such a pain in the ass when you can't see anything yeah like I um early on before people were really actually wearing masks so regularly um my boyfriend and I did wear masks to go to like Walgreens one time to get some Mm -hmm. like to pick up a prescription and we were in the Walgreens for like, I don't even know, like maybe 10 minutes. And somebody came up to me and was like, if your glasses are fogging up, your mask isn't working. And I was like, as someone who has like social anxiety, I was like, wow, this is a living nightmare. <laughs> like a stranger just felt the need to come up and tell me what I'm doing is wrong and that everyone can tell. Like... So that also turned um, mask wearing with glasses into like this, like all of a sudden this like super 
anxiety producing thing for me where I'm like, if my glasses are fogging up and people could see it, is everybody thinking I'm wearing my mask wrong? Like, is everybody judging me? <laughs> so I think that I think that that person. I ha- sometimes I get nervous. I hold my breath <laughs> when I'm wearing my mask, and I'm like, this isn't helpful. <laughs> I think that person was being overly sensitive. I think unless you have like an N95 mask that is fitted to your face, some of your air is getting out of the mask. Like anyone that's wearing a cloth mask, you don't have like an airtight seal. Right. So the idea is just to try to limit the amount of droplets. It's not like you are. Yeah. And if anything, you wearing glasses is keeping keeping people safer because more of the air is getting trapped by your glasses <laughs> before glasses it goes out into the world. Escaping into the world. <laughs> more of my rancid burps are just getting caught in my glasses and infecting my eyes and not other people. Yeah, so, I think what you needed to do you're was welcome, tell that Chicago. <laughs> exactly, tell that stranger you're welcome. You should be so lucky to have me fog have up just my glasses. I my mask down and burped in their face. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't do that, but I understand the impulse. Um, oh, I do want to give a quick shout out. Uh, this is a podcast, and so therefore not a visual medium. But I recently received this card in the mail from one of uh, our personal friends. And I wanted to show it to Hannah so that she could describe it to our podcast listeners because I thought listeners would get a real kick out of it. Hannah, you don't need fr- to say that. You could just say one of our fans because it makes us sound like more important. One of our friends from high school mm-hmm. who has recently begun listening to our podcast sent me this card in the mail. Ha ha ha. It's a little cupcake. <laughs> And there's a, the mound of frosting and the cherry both have smiles. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I get it because mm-hmm. some of us leave our stains in high school and some of our le- some of us leave our stains late. I think you're life. the big blonde frosting glob and I'm the little cherry on top annoying you. Oh, thank you. I love that <laughs> analogy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And the little cherry on top that's like, I'm here, too. <laughs> And also me. Where's the peanut butter? Uh, Get at me, bro. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, Hannah, I think we have a very exciting conversation ahead of us for our movie this week. Are you ready to get into it? I am, because I also think that this little touchdown on, you know, kind of how's your quarantine going is going to lead pretty well in some of this discussion because at times with this movie I had the feeling of like why am I getting so annoyed right now is this because Mm. of the movie or is this because of where I'm at right now okay okay (laughs) so that that's really good to know I think we're gonna have a really interesting conversation so tonight we are disgusting disgusting we are disgusting we are always disgusting Disgusting. Not just tonight. But this time we're discussing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to be discussing uh, Jeremy Gardner's 2019 film, After Midnight. Uh, this film, I learned, was originally titled Something Else, which is interesting. Like, not something else. It was called Something Else. Um, yeah. When it first premiered at film festivals, I'm not quite sure why the name changed. Um But the film centers around a character named Hank, who's played by Jeremy Gardner. Listeners of our podcast might remember that we are watching this movie pretty specifically because Jeremy Gardner played uh, Dez's boyfriend in Bliss. 
And Hannah and I both liked his uh, first feature film debut as a writer director. And so I wanted her to watch this because I had already seen it. Um, so Hank is dating a woman named Abby played by Bria Grant. And they live in like a small town in Florida. They have moved into a house that has belonged to his family for years and years and years. It's kind of an old dilapidated house that they're sort of fixing up. And she leaves and we don't know where she went or how long she's gone or if she's ever coming back. And while she's gone, Hank starts getting sort of, uh, I guess harassed is the best way to put it. Harassed by what he believes is a monster that's in the woods outside of the house on the property. Um, <laughs> well, calling it, he's getting harassed by a monster. Just by a real um, pesky monster in the woods. The like, monster's a real dick. Leaving bags of shits on the porch, ding dong <laughs> ditch at all hours in the night. I mean, kind of. Um, knocking over the cat food. So this movie is told in a non-linear fashion, so we sort of jump back and forth as far as the narrative goes between flashbacks of Abby and Hank together and then Hank now living alone. Um, the film also has, uh, some really, for people who are fans of like indie films, especially has some great side characters. And I want to especially call out, uh, Henry Zabrowski, who's a co a host on last podcast on the left, who plays Hank's best friend, Wade. And then you have Abby's brother, Shane played by Justin Benson. And if you're a fan of indie horror films, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead did movies like The Resolution and Spring and The Endless, um, so you get to see like a lot of uh, people who come from different film backgrounds working together, which is really fun. That's the general premise of the movie. And I'm the one who picked it. Um, Hannah, what did you give me your overall impressions of After Midnight? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you mentioned Henry Zabrowski because I very early on wrote, so far, Henry Zabrowski is the saving grace of this film. So I thought his performance was quite quite solid i thought he was really his, funny his performance is really good throughout yeah like his his little riffs and jokes he kind of threw in were always like kind of understated but hilarious so i really appreciate that like it wasn't like he was coming in too hot at any point um it always seemed to roll very naturally can i give you a can i give you a fact while you appreciate that <gasps> excuse me i'm keeping that in <laughs> nah. I she forgot, took her mask like, off and everything. I forgot, like, I'm drinking peach seltzer, which is, like, why did I think that was a good idea? I'm going to be burping this whole time. Um, I want to tell you <laughs> that this is interesting because I know that you uh, maybe didn't like this movie as a whole as much as I did. That when Jeremy Gardner was writing this movie, he wrote the character of Wade, who is played by Henry Zabrowski, for himself because he thought that if he were able to sell the movie, nobody would let him play the romantic lead. So a lot of those lines that really worked for you were written by uh, Jeremy Gardner, thinking that he wouldn't be allowed to get to play the sort of romantic lead at the center of the film, which is interesting. Yeah, that's sweet. I, I mean, I like that he got to play that character. Um, like, and it's kind of funny that he wrote the uh that side character i guess that's kind of funny too because a lot of the time i felt like that character had more character than mm. and uh than the main character what's the main guy's name again i forget wade or wade's hank the other guy is, hank, hank is hank. the yeah 
Okay, so like I said, um, as I was watching this, I was also questioning, like, am I really mad at this movie or is this more just like my own uh, mental state <laughs> uh-huh. at the time? But um, I don't know, like, so for, so one thing that I don't, um, that I get frustrated with often in independent movies, especially independent horror movies and just really independent movies on the whole is oftentimes when there is a female character who is unattainable or it's after a breakup, there's all of these shots of what I call like this girl is like in quotes, this girl is so beautiful porn where it's like a lot of slow-mo close-ups, like sort of like soft, like zoom ins and outs. And like, I, I actually did a project in college when I was studying film about how, um, I took a class about like philosophy in film and how philosophy is applied to film and whatever. I actually hated the class, not a person who handles philosophy very well, but there was a philosophy of aesthetics that's like basically anything can be beautiful if you like do it aesthetically in an aesthetically pleasing way. So I made this like a uh, short film as a project to illustrate that by having this guy have a dream about a girl he has a crush on. And the dream is shot very like dreamy. And it's a lot of those slow-mo shots. She's like running on a beach and it's like close-ups. It's her eyes. It's whatever. And then he's later walking around campus telling his friend about it. And he bumps into her in the dining hall while she's just waiting for food. And he doesn't even recognize her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, sometimes I get annoyed by that. Cause I usually feel like it's a lot of times it's a movie that's like being directed by a man or it's so often a movie about a guy who's been broken up with by a girl and all of his memories of the girl are like, just to me, it feels like overly schmaltzy kind of. Uh-huh. Um, so considering that like half this movie is flashbacks of him thinking about her in that fashion, um, very early on, I was kind of like, uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, this might be a bit of a problem for me. Um, so like just personally that like that, trope in movies bothers me Uh um because I think a lot of times it's used to give a female character care like a character which is basically she's beautiful and unattainable but it doesn't Uh actually serve to show who she is as a person um it's a lot of times way more about like the man's view or perception of her than it's actually about her character at all sure yeah um so that kind of bothers me and, and since I was so heavily featured in this movie like that was tough for me to kind of get around um I do really think that um with this movie and the battery that Jeremy Garner does a really good job with very little money and like making stuff um effective and scary um, like even just with like sounds like when he uh-huh. there's that scene when he comes out of the house with the shotgun and it's like this crazy like snarling beastly noise but when he comes around the corner there's nothing there and right. like that's freaky without with you literally having to do like nothing except for putting a sound effect like 
I think that type of thing is something that he's really talented in, and I really appreciate it about the movie. But a lot of the movie, I was kind of like, does he have a job? How is he able to just be at home all day being drunk and complaining about his girlfriend? And also, I'm kind of like, hey, listen, breakups suck. I get it. But, like, deal with your fucking shit (laughs) in a more healthy way. Like, I just found the premise of the movie, like, kind of annoying. Because I was like... I was like, this is just a little too, like, wallowy. Like, poor guy got broken up with this, like, manic pixie dream girl kind of thing that I'm really in the mood for, I guess. Sure. Um, Although I was going to ask you, because they make a lot of references to um, the note she left. Did we ever actually see the note that she left? Yes. So I was going to say... Um, I think that's, so I guess before I answer your question, let me give you like my overall impressions of the movie. Cause I think we talked, I think we talked about this on the podcast, but we may not have. So I saw this movie at Panic Fest this year, but I saw it on the last day of Panic Fest and Jeremy and I and our dear friend Andy had gone to brunch beforehand and I had uh, maybe overindulged a little <laughs> and our favorite indie theater as Hannah is well aware one of their screening rooms, one of the theaters has couches as some of the seating options. And so Andy and I both dozed off watching after midnight. So when I saw it the first time, I fell asleep for a good like half hour in the middle. (laughs) Um, So I saw the beginning and the end and that was it. So I was really excited for it to come out on VOD so I could rewatch it. Um, And it's super interesting to hear your take on this movie because um, I read a lot of things in the movie really differently. And so one of the things in particular, since you asked about her note, is I think it's very important for understanding where he's at emotionally that, like, they didn't, it was not a breakup. He just, like, woke up one morning and she was gone. I mean, I I got that. And she had left a note that made it unclear whether or not she was coming back. And I think, like, the idea... We are to understand that they had been together for 10 years. Um, And I think the idea that like a person that you live with for 10 years and you have sort of built a life with that person, they just leave and you don't know where they went or when they are coming back. um, To me feels like a little bit more substantial than just like, oh, you got dumped and you should get your shit together. So like, I think that's that's I think that's an important distinction that like we don't know where she is. Um, and he does, this doesn't be, I didn't catch this the first time watching it. Although again, I was asleep for a large part, but, um, he and his girlfriend, Abby own a bar in town. That's what he does. Oh, okay. So we see him go to that bar several times and like hang out with the bartender or like he takes, she's like, this is what we're running low on. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he necessarily is working at the bar, uh, often. Yeah. I mean, I knew that like, I... I saw, like saw the parts of him going there and there was like one scene where the bartender leaves and he just stayed and I was like can he do that so like yeah. it was not clear to me like I didn't get that it didn't sink in that he I don't think the they bar. make it cl- I don't think they make it clear until the very end like when he and Abby so spoiler alert Abby does come back and in the end 
when he and Abby are talking, there are a couple lines at various points about like them owning the bar, but that's, I think that's the only part that we hear it explicitly. Yeah. Um, so I really like this movie. Um, and upon this was sort of a first and second watch in some ways on this viewing. I think what really struck me is, uh, you and I, I think are both a, a big fan of, uh, his first film, The Battery, which he also stars in. And I don't know if you noticed that he has a catcher's mitt tattooed on his arm. Like, I have to assume that's because of The Battery. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, which is very cool. So I think he does a really good job of writing scripts that I personally would describe as, like, very naturalistic, that I think other people, I think, fairly would call mumblecore. Like, I think he definitely lives within that realm of just kind of, like, it's super low budget. So maybe some of it's improvised. I'm not quite sure in the case of this particular movie. I know that in a lot of times Bumblecore movies are. But just sort of like this fits very squarely in that same genre with like Joe Swanberg and movies like Year Next. Like it, it sort of fits in that same um, that same vein. But I think he has a really, really naturalistic way of writing characters and writing their dialogue. I think it's interesting what you say about the characterization of Abby and of Hank, because I think it's true that we don't get a ton of their individual characters. Yeah. And for me, um, that reads less like a deficiency and more like it makes those characters feel sort of easily... um, overlaid onto like any anyone's experience in one way or another right like ultimately with their relationship I don't think we're super interested in either one of them as a person I think he wants us to be interested in their relationship and what the questions he's asking about their relationship are like what kind of things when you're in a relationship with someone for a long time and you, especially because they are supposed to have started dating when they were like 23, right? Mm-hmm. They were super young. So like, what are the things that you give up? What are the things that you sacrifice? Like, is the sacrifice equal between both partners? Or does it, does it feel like one person is bending over backwards to um, make the other person happy and sort of stay within the guidelines of what the other person wants? Um And I really like, as someone who's been in a relationship for a long time, like a lot of that stuff felt very like relatable. Even if Jeremy and I like don't, these are not the same conversations that he and I have. Like, I think each of us has an idea of what our life is going to look like. And naturally, once you are with a partner, you now have to like negotiate the difference between those two things. And like a really, um, A really good example for me is, as you know, like I love New Orleans. It's my favorite place in the whole world. I've always, I lived there for a year. I've always wanted to live there again. Um, But Jeremy loves Missouri, where he's from, and is very proud of being from Missouri. Like I love Delaware too, but like I think he's, he's really, Missouri is part of his identity in a way that Delaware is not necessarily a part of my identity. And we have like had, we are 30 years old and we've already had conversations about like, okay, well we can live in Missouri if we retire in New Orleans kind of thing. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So it's like the kinds of things that you're trying to navigate 
with a partner when you're with them for a long time and it's like, oh, I'm going to have, like, we're going to have to shape our lives around each other and what does that look like? I think, I think this movie does really well. And the other thing I'll say before we get into like digging into specifics is I love, I think it's common when we talk about horror films and sci-fi and fantasy to talk about the idea that movies that exist in a different universe are able to take a thing that like we can't address head on and make it a monster or make it a like a different planet so that we can address it without having to talk about it. Yeah. And I really like in this movie, I really like the way that that feels like it's made very explicit that like <laughs> there's a scene where Hank and Wade are like walking through the woods trying to find the monster and Wade is like getting super into like what the monster might look like and stuff. And then he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, dude. Here I am, like, talking about aliens and shit, and, like, you're having a hard time, and, like, gives him a hug. And it's, like, they're only able to have that moment of intimacy because of the monster. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's this nice, like, very explicit, like, the monster is a symbol, and that allows us to be vulnerable with each other, which I Although, liked. it's funny you say that, because I, at one point, was like, maybe the monster is his alcoholism, and that never really got addressed. <laughs> Fair. The man was literally, I think, drinking in every single scene of the film. <laughs> and at the Fair. end, at the end of the movie, they it's not even like a, a thing at all. It, it's even more like, you know, it's like let's drink some more wine, <laughs> like let's just keep this going. Um, but it's funny that you say that because I do agree, like that um, monster movies, especially. And just horror movies especially allow people to explore, um, like, fears and just, like, sort of anxieties um, in everyday life or just in general by giving them a scary face or by... That's, like, part of why certain types of horror movies become more popular at different times, you know, Mm -hmm. and why they're why, like, torture porn movies became such a thing, and then, like, Home Invasion, like, all those um, ebbs and flows and waves of films that represent some kind of general anxiety, like, within the consciousness of society. Um, And that's something that I do... that I did like about the movie, was I liked how sort of, like, um, blatantly he explored that and he did that with the monster in this movie. Um, but at the same time for, for me, it didn't, it also didn't get into the monster enough to really do that as much as I wanted it to. Like at times I was just kind of bored and um, it was a lot of flashback and a lot of just, like, him sitting alone drinking. Um, and at, at, at a point, it just became repetitive to me. Like, I was like, this movie could probably mm-hmm. be, like, half an hour shorter. Um, and it's not even that long of a movie. So that's kind of not great. Um, but I like the... I like the... the the idea of the monster and the discussions within the movie that it creates. Like I liked um, when the sheriff said every town has 
a big scary monster or every mm-hmm. every area of the world has their own monster and I liked when he said like you know everybody's imaginations run wild in the dark it's been happening since cavemen were drawing yeah. in caves about it like I like all of that and, and I, I like enjoyed- when he says sorry to jump in I like when he says like we always want to give a face to the thing we're afraid of. And what he says explicitly is we always give it sharp teeth, which is like such a great. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think all of that discussion was very well written um, and flowed really well. And I agree with you in that front that I think his writing, um, whether or not it's written that way or performed that way, but the conversations flow very naturally. And in a way where someone can say a line like that, that is, very well written, but deliver it with, with sounding like it just came off the cuff and wasn't, you know, like right. like someone writing it in a script being like, yeah, fucking nailed it. Like, I think right. the writing is really solid in that way in um, the performances as well, that everything, when they're discussing and talking about these bigger ideas about life and about monsters, all feels very natural and flows well. Um, and it also just, like... A little tangent here but it also made me laugh because um it it i think about this all the time but like yes i am a 26 year old adult and yes i'm afraid of the dark and i sleep with a nightlight and when i moved in with my boyfriend for quarantine like he obviously doesn't sleep with a nightlight and that's really hard for me <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um when I mean, I, my boyfriend likes to sleep with the bedroom door open, which really freaks me the fuck oh, out. Oh, yeah, that so was, I feel would you. scare me. Uh, my boyfriend's bedroom doesn't even have a door, so try that. Right, right. Terrifying. Um, <laughs> so sometimes we watch scary movies. I'm just, like, laying in bed, just staring out this, like, open doorway, like, what's out there? Right. Um, <laughs> and we don't have a nightlight, so I can't see. Um, <laughs> but um, I was trying to explain to him, like, why... I like a nightlight and whatever. And I was like, every time I think about the dark and being scared of the dark, I always go back to the same experience of, I had to be little because we were still living on Hitching Post, which was like our first house that we lived in. Oh no, in. I feel like I know where this is going and I feel like I'm to blame for this. No, 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 no. Okay, that's also okay. a funny story, but no, that's not <laughs> what I'm thinking of. Oh okay, my God, that's hilarious. Um, that's a separate story for another time. And that story is like for years I told people... I told people I had something, had some kind of issue because, oh yeah, I used to tell people I had bad circulation in my feet because, well, I'll tell you that story later because of that story. <laughs> anyway, blah, blah, blah. Back to the task at hand. So um, if we were in Hitching Post, I had to be like, I don't know, like four. like, uh-huh. <laughs> And every night our dad, when we were going to bed, our dad would bring us like a glass of milk or a glass of water in bed. And as I got to be older, quote unquote, (laughs) a.k.a. four years old, dad decided that I was old enough that if I wanted water, I should get myself water after I was in bed. And I was really scared of the dark. And our bedroom was on the second floor of the house. And the kitchen was all the way at the other side on the first floor. So you had to go down the stairs and through the family room. Which had like a big glass Huge sliding door. Glass. No, not that not that one, the other one, the green one. Oh, the living room. The living room. So that but also had a huge window 
right. into our front yard. So either way, if you're whichever, if you go to the living room, the family room, either way, you're getting a gigantic window into darkness that you have to get, go past to get to the kitchen, which once you get to the kitchen was dark and there's a laundry room with the door open, also pitch black. Yeah. So dad was going to help me like learn to go get my own water. So he said he would wait at the top of the stairs and I would walk, get my glass of milk in the kitchen and come back. It was the most terrifying thing of my life to that point. Like the slow ass walk down the stairs and I kept looking behind me, looking at dad, making sure he was still there. Like everything was so dark and I was so scared. And when I got all the way through to the kitchen... I turned the kitchen light on, and in my terrified child imagination, and just because I turned the light on and there was like a shadow in the laundry room, I thought I saw a tiger in the laundry room, and I screamed and ran all the way back up the stairs crying (laughs) and I was so scared. I was shaking. And dad was like, I'm so sorry. I'll never make you get your own water ever again. (laughs) And like, I'm pretty sure he only ever went and got me water for like a year after that. But when we talked. That's how the famous blue Gatorade stain got on your uh, (laughs) comfort or your trundle bed. My trundle bed because I fell asleep drinking blue Powerade. It was Powerade. I remember that. My apologies. Um, But. Like, dad, afterwards, when we were talking about it, dad explained to me, like, sometimes when your imagination is overactive or, like, if it's dark and you can't see things and your imagination can run wild, it will create things or it'll you'll think you saw something that's so real you swear you saw it, but, like, it couldn't be. Um, but, like, yes, our father had to go check to reassure me that there was no tiger there in was the laundry no room. But, like, that whole discussion about people being afraid of the or being scared in the dark and their imaginations running wild and the sharp teeth like hearing that it did take me to this place of like like I just hit home for me because I'm like ah yes that's so true and like (laughs) that experience like I still get scared sometimes like walking in my apartment in the dark to get water in in the middle of the night where I'm like yeah could be a tiger anywhere in this bitch. Like, I don't know. (laughs) As an adult who's also afraid of the dark, I totally get you. Um, I want to talk a little bit. I think it's totally fair. I think this is a movie that tonally will not work for everyone. I think there is is a lot of shifting going on between very warm, funny, romantic scenes and, and scenes that Hannah was talking about where Jeremy Gardner is just like drunk alone shooting at a monster we can't see. And so I think I really like this movie, but I am sensitive to the fact that it's not going to work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the relationship, um, the way that it's written and performed, because I do, like I said, I feel like the the relationship between Abby and Hank is more of a character than Hank or Abby are individually. And I really love the way that they're um I think that like they as actors have great chemistry and I think he does a really good job of writing dialogue between a couple that feels like very natural like it just felt like watching two real people 
who are in a relationship. Like, I feel like you don't always see that, right? Where, like, we're watching a movie where it's a male protagonist who also wrote the movie and it's about him and his love interest. Um, and I'm wondering if it worked for you. Um, kind of hit or miss for me. Like, there were certain okay. scenes that I did feel that way um, that I did think were kind of cute or... Ne- like flew flew flowed naturally mm-hmm. um, give me an example what was the scene that worked don't for you, you love and- how i'm critiquing something for saying it doesn't sound natural while i struggle to speak naturally um <laughs> but i give me an example of one that that worked for you and one that didn't work for you um the um when they were talking about the nut wine and they kept bringing in the nut wine back up yeah I didn't like that because I was just like, that's a little too, it just felt like too cutesy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially like how much it got brought back up. It was like, ah, the nut wine again. They love nut wine. It's their thing. Like that just (laughs) didn't work for me. Um, I feel like I'm going to be on the defensive for this movie. I'm trying not to be, but I will just say that I think the movie is trying to establish that, like, right, he buys her all this shitty wine for her birthday the first year they're together. And so the tradition is they always drink it on her birthday. And yeah. since uh, most of our flashbacks are on her birthday, we see her drinking it because it's her birthday. Anyway, I have thoughts about it, but we can we can get back to it. I'm sorry I interrupted. Um, I had a really hard time telling that any of the flashbacks were happening at, like, different periods of time because neither of them looked any different. Yeah. I like how they're like, Jeremy Gardner didn't have a beard at the beginning, and now he does. And I was like, yeah, that's not, like, I that could have been, like, a couple of months. I don't know. Didn't even notice. Like, <laughs> like I just didn't. Um, and again, like, because of the way that those were shot sometimes, where it's sort of, like, hazy, bright light, like, it at times I got kind of just checked out for those scenes, because I'm like, oh, here we go again with, like, the... Look how pretty she is when she tucks her hair behind her ear slowly as she giggles. Like, that just rubs me the wrong way. Um, yeah. But I did do like... Do you... Can I, just, can I just ask you? This might be a personal question. Like, do you... I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying. Does that not feel relatable to you about... To think about, like, an ex that way? Um, I feel like I've only dated guys, but I definitely, like, there are guys that I've dated where I can be like, oh my goodness, and I remember the way, like, I, like, there are guys I dated in middle school that I still remember, like, the way their cologne smelled, just because, like, it was- Are you asking, are you saying this is, like, a personal question because you're just putting me on blast that I've only had, like, one boyfriend in my entire life? Okay, that's not (laughs) what I was trying to do, but I was just trying to say, like, I- I hear what you're saying, but I think, again, and this is just, I think, evidence of the fact that, like, the relationship did work for me and didn't work for you. I think, like, the relationship as a whole was written in such a way that, like, I was, like, those scenes worked for me because I was like, yeah, that's relatable. That, like, when you look back at a relationship, you're seeing all of the good stuff and it's, like, very rosy, but. So, I mean, I think a a movie that does that well is, um... There's like that, uh, there's that moment in uh, in a five hundred days of summer where Joseph Gordon Levitt's little sister is like, "You're going over these memories again and again in your head," and she was like, "Next time you do that, I just want you to look a little deeper." And he goes over the memories again, and he sees 
more of like the cracks and stuff. Um, and so that's something I didn't get as much out of this is like, I didn't see very much of any, um, I would like, and that might be, a, that might've been a choice to only show like primarily happy rosy memories. There weren't really too many where there were any sort of obvious cracks showing in the relationship. Um, which I think I would have been more, um, like that would have made it feel a little more fleshed out to me rather than everything just being so like schmaltzy. Um, and I, I mean, I, my boyfriend that I have now is only the second boyfriend I've like the second person I've ever been in a monogamous relationship with, but I've dated like, um, a couple of girls and guys sort of intermittently in my life. But, um, I guess I just don't really, um, I guess on the one hand, I am not always super sentimental about relationships where like there are people I've dated or I've loved that I really like, um, or I'm sad that like it didn't work out, but I don't think of it quite so maybe it's just me and myself I think I often think of things just like darker and more gritty <laughs> for some reason like it's like when you say more gritty you mean like the flyers mascot yes right? like, like he's like, always there he's, my... he's always just lurking in the background of your thoughts um yeah, I don't know. I guess, like, when I reflect on my past relationships, I often think of them at nighttime and not during the day in beautiful natural light. I don't know why that is, and um, I'm going to make a note of it to bring that up with my therapist <laughs> soon. As soon well, as so I get I back wanted... into my therapy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but before I get too far away from it, I do want to say, I do want to give the movie props in in that the scene when they were painting and she was singing and she wanted him to sing with him. At first I was kind of like, I don't know about this. And then the way the music like abruptly cut out and he was like, I'm not singing. That's not my thing. And then she said like, I bet you would sing for Julie. Like I loved that. And I thought that that was a great moment of a call like it was a callback that really worked for me and didn't feel mm -hmm. like kind of overproduced or forced um and I love the way she like painted on his shirt like mm -hmm. I I loved that scene I thought that was a, a, a moment of a couple um that I found really believable and really sweet but I think now that you kind of mentioned it and that kind of made me think about it more I think what I guess part of what I didn't connect to about their relationship was because it was all such positive memories I didn't see any of the issues or like anything that sort of humanized them more like it became more like this like overly perfect relationship rather than like a movie where you kind of see the fights and the sweet parts when somebody is reflecting on their relationship uh -huh. um even, like, when she came home, he wasn't even that mad. He was just like, I'm so okay, glad so you're wait. back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in because <laughs> that leads me to a scene I wanted to talk about, which is that one of the – so mo a lot of the flashbacks we see are surrounding her birthdays, which is why we keep getting this, like, peanut wine over and over and over again, right? So 
the first, the opening scenes of the movie are, it's, it's her birthday when I guess she's turning 24 and it seems like it's very early on in their relationship. He takes her to the house to show it to her. He's not living there. No one lives there. It's just like a house that's in his family. And he has sort of like decorated the living room so that they can like spend the evening there to celebrate her birthday. And he reveals that he, she, we find out later in the movie or throughout the movie, I guess, that she, uh, considers herself to be a bit of a wine connoisseur mm -hmm. and he has bought her this wine. I think well in, in with a well-intentioned uh, with all the best of intentions, he buys her this wine that is a peanut wine and she's like, she sips it and is like describing it to him. It sounds terrible. And then he's like, well, I, the guys like were really like really smooth talkers and they, I bought like several cases of it. Um, and so we get this, recurring thing right where like we see it's her birthday again and they're having the wine and it's her birthday again and they're having the wine and I had the opposite reaction I think that you had where for me it feels like the wine uh maybe too too on the nose is like becoming a metaphor for their relationship and so every birthday when he's breaking out the wine she's like less and less excited until we get to this scene where it's her birthday and they're having it, it looks like a dinner party of some kind um, and this is before the ending, this is like still a flashback. And we learn that Henry Zabrowski's wife or girlfriend is pregnant. Mm -hmm. And this information was clearly not meant to be revealed. They didn't want to tell her on her birthday. And I thought this scene was so phenomenally well done because the camera is placed at the end of the table. So it's pointing dead at Bria Grant. And sort of everyone else is like on the periphery, but she is in the center of frame for the whole scene. Mm -hmm. And before we find out that Henry Zabrowski and his girlfriend or wife, I don't ever know that we um, know a lot about their relationship, but his partner is going to have a baby. Um, you know, uh, Hank goes and gets a bottle of the peanut wine because like that's what they do for her birthday. And you can see her kind of be like, oh, yeah, this is what we do and you can tell that like it's not as cute anymore mm -hmm. right like she appreciates the tradition but I, you can see that like creeping sense of like is this just what we're gonna do you know now this is like but this is what we do and then he opens it and she's like explaining to her friend like oh yeah it's a tradition it's like this thing that we do and she takes a sip and sort of to herself is just like this hasn't aged well mm -hmm. um and it's right around that time. It's sort of like right as she's saying that, that Henry Zabrowski is sort of like spills the beans that they're going to have a kid. Um, and that leads Jeremy Gardner into like a tirade about how he like kids just like take five years off your life. And he would only ever have kids if you could like just get them at eight years old when all the like hard work is done. Right. Um, and we see throughout the scene like the camera never shifts focus away from Bria Grant. And we just like see her face continue to fall. And mm -hmm. also the thing that I found maybe a little bit more subtle, but that I found even more moving is like the way that she looks at Jeremy Gardner throughout the scene goes from like, you're a person I love. And this tradition is like silly. And I don't necessarily like, like it as much as I used to, but I appreciate the sentimentality of it until by the end, she's like looking at him like she doesn't know who he is and mm -hmm. she doesn't understand how her life got to where she's at. Um, and I think like what we learn when she comes back is that 
you know, she really panicked about, um, like, there is a lot of anxiety for her about, like, being in her early 30s and not being married and not having kids. And, um, you know, if I can be totally honest, like, I am with this, my partner and I have been together for almost eight years. And we are not married yet. And I'm 30. And even though I rationally understand that that's fine, there's a part of me that's like, yes, but I'm getting old and we have to do all the things because that's what everyone else does. Like a lot of my friends are already married and have a house and have kids. Um, and so it to me, there's like that sort of just like the the feeling of. And I'm not saying I relate to her entirely because I think like for her, there is also this deeper sense that like she has given up other things in her life that she wants Mm -hmm. um, because she didn't feel like it was what, um, what Hank wanted. So I'm not saying that that's the situation I'm in because it isn't. Um, But like, I find the portrayal of their relationship to be really compelling because I, I definitely like understand the feeling of, waking up and being like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, it's, you know, I feel like I have friends now that every time I ask for their address, they're like, oh, is it for a wedding invitation? Mm-hmm. And it's like, n- no, like, you guys are my friends. And when we're engaged, you'll know about it. I'm not going to, like, surprise you with a <laughs> wedding invitation. So, like, it is, right? Like, which is, which is funny. Like, the absurdity as it is. The absurdity of it is funny, but, like, there is a part of it that, like, weighs on you a little bit to be, like, it makes you feel, like, it, it makes me feel like everyone thinks that, like, I'm not doing it right or, like, Mm -hmm. we should, we're behind where we should be. So, like, I think that's part of why this movie resonates for me so much is, like, I'm very happy in my relationship, Um, but, like, I see the sort of like the pressure that she's under as far as the like, this is what the like normative timeline is for what everyone's going to do. Um, and I think that her performance in that scene and then the scene that mirrors it at the end where she comes back and they're having a birthday party for her um, and Hank is singing to her and we get another shot of like straight down the table at her. Um, I think she does a great job with scenes where it's just like, the camera is staring directly at her and all of the work in that scene has to be done by her facial expression. Mm-hmm. I think she does a really good job. Um, so I think now would be a good time to, as we kind of get into that part of the movie to talk about yeah. the ending. Yes. Um, so can I say one very nerdy thing? I mean, this is like transitioning into the ending. Yeah, but sure. I noticed what, because the first time I watched it, I was definitely asleep when she initially came back, like I woke up and she was back and I was like, I don't know what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I do think that it's very interesting. And I definitely noticed that there's a really long scene when she comes back where they're both sitting in the front doorway with the doors open, waiting for the monster to come. Yeah. And they're both wearing green. Did you notice that? They're both wearing green shirts. They, like, look like they're wearing matching outfits almost. Yeah. Um, Because green is the color of, like, rebirth and renewal and starting again. And it's this, like... And I was like, I see you. I see you, Justin. Justin... Or Justin Benson. Different director. Jeremy Gardner. Like, (laughs) I see you. Um, So. So. The ending. 
She comes Let's back. They have her birthday party. Um, the sheriff spoke my mind when he was like, it's really weird. We're all pretending like you didn't leave for however long she was gone. Yeah. Which she sort of insists on, right? Like the first scene that we see them interact, like we see her come home and she like sees the, her, there's birthday cards for her on the floor. There's a pile of mail on the counter. Her note is still taped to the cupboard. And then he, she's like playing a song on the radio that like initially or on the record player that initially seems like it's non-diegetic and then it's clear that they can hear it and it's all about like being home for good. Yeah. And he comes downstairs and just like turns the record player off and walks away. So the first thing where they're together, she's like, it's my birthday tomorrow. We need to get the house in order because people are coming over. And he's yeah. like, do you think that's a good idea? Because like <laughs> you've been gone for a month <laughs> and she's like, we're having people over. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but the main thing I kind of want to get into is as he's singing this karaoke song to her. and For Julie. For Julie, right. <laughs> and he um, also kind of has like a monologue where he's like, you know, we can leave. We can do whatever you want. Like there's ways, like I just want to be with you. You know, I say... I know I said, like, you think you're always right, but, like, you probably are. Like, which, again, I do think was, like, a well-written monologue. Um, But I kind of want to get into, like, during that is when we have the reveal that there is a monster. Uh Mm-hmm. I guess, like, we see them. Great reveal. We see the monster briefly earlier on. So I guess that kind of is the bigger deal. But at that point, it could still be in his head, you know, like... Yeah. This is the first time we see other people Right, and it's like the monster monster just, like, charges him in front of everybody. Um, And then he, like, beats it to death and stabs it with a buck antler. Um, And then, like, essentially proposes to her, like, gets down on one knee and says, like, let's buy another case of wine. Um, He says, how do you feel about drinking another wine of this shit with me, which... Very much worked for me. <laughs> yeah. So. While he's covered in blood. I could tell by your face as I was explaining this. I was like, oh, Sophie loved that. She loved it. I can just tell. <laughs> I did. Um, I did. Can you please share with people what song he sang for her? Because, like, as we alluded to, there's this, like, running callback in the movie. Right. That in the first flashback we see of them, in the first scene of them on her 24th birthday, there's a mixtape in the tape player and it's bright orange and it says for Julie on it. And Mm -hmm. she gives him a lot of shit and he's like, it's just one song over and over again, but we never hear what the song is. And then they both reference Julie over and over again throughout the movie. So when he finally like says his monologue about her and then he starts singing, he's like, this is for you, baby. And Julie. (laughs) And what song is it, Hannah? Um, I actually don't remember. I remember it was funny, but I don't remember what song it was. I don't remember the name of it. It sounds like, you say. Oh, yeah. I only hear what I I want want to. to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is really funny. Which I will admit was really funny and made me laugh. But to be honest, by that point, I was like, I'm tired of this movie. Like, I'm bored. Oh, okay. Continue. Um, (laughs) I'm so sorry. It's okay. We're allowed to have different experiences with movies. Sometimes we do these recordings without video, and sometimes we do them with. And right now, I'm staring at your face and, like, seeing how much you loved this movie. And I'm feeling so bad for, like, having to look back in your, like, beautiful blue eyes and be like, I at that point, I was like, um, but, <laughs> but like, 
the ending, I was bummed because when the monster turned out to be real, I wanted more. Like, I wanted so much more from that than just, like, him beating it to death and then proposing to her. Like, I wanted the monster to, like, what I wanted was for her to be the monster or, like, somebody in the movie to be turning into the monster at night. Like, if it was, like, her brother was turning into a monster at night and, like, that was a huge, like... There was so much more that I wanted from the monster aspect of the movie. Yeah. That the ending for me, like, did not deliver on that. I think that's totally fair. And that was the ultimate, like, what? That was it? Like, for me. Because the whole time I was, like, in my... And that was also just because, like, you know, now we're watching a horror movie a week for the podcast. And on top of that, I watch other horror movies and... Like, I watch them, and there's so many of them that I'm, like, trying to figure out while I'm watching it. So the whole time I'm watching it, like, what's the twist? What's the twist? And, like, there really isn't one. It's just a monster. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I was let down by it just being a monster that he killed with a buck and then proposed to his girlfriend. I think that's fair. <laughs> I definitely... Um, it's interesting because I read the monster as representing like either his loneliness or and or the whatever the parts of him were that like made Abby leave like the parts of him that made him worry that like she wasn't enough or that she had to give things up for him um and so for me like when he when the monster shows up first of all it's like so vindicating because the sheriff throughout has been like, it's not a real monster. It's those are black. Like, yeah, there's like claw marks on his door. He like lays a bear trap. So then the sheriff's like, it's a black bear. He lays a bear trap out and the monster pries it open. And he's like, that's not a black bear. And the sheriff keeps being like the sheriff, who's Abby's brother played by Justin Benson keeps being like, it's just a bear. You're being ridiculous. Yeah. Um, And then at the dinner party is like, I'm sorry that we're all, like, we just can't all act like it's normal that, like, you were gone for a month and also your boyfriend, like, (laughs) thinks that there's a monster. So for me, I found it, A, like, so validating that the monster was a real thing and they were all like, oh, shit, he was right the whole time. Yeah. Um, But also that, like, then it feels like killing the monster is, like, the, again, taking the metaphor of him, like, being very vulnerable with his girlfriend in front of all these people and being like, we can sell the bar and move to wherever you want because I just want to be with you. And now I'm going to sing the song and like make myself embarrassed. Uh, so to me, the monster worked. But I, again, I think like I said earlier at the tone, I totally get it. If you watch this movie and you're like, yeah, the tone's all over the place and we don't see the monster that much. Like, I think that's a fair criticism. This movie really works for me, but I don't think it's going to work for everybody. Right. Um, I do want to know what you thought about the practical effects, because I think the monster design is very cool. Um, it was really cool, but at the end, it was definitely computer animated at one point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was cool. I don't know, it kind of looked like a giant porcupine. (laughs) Um, okay, I want to share some... (laughs) I want to share some fun trivia with you because even though we don't agree about this movie, I think, can we agree that we both still love Jeremy Gardner, even if this movie wasn't your favorite? 
Um, no, he is uh, dead to me. Like, he's dead as the monster at the end of this film. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I'm a couple kidding. fun facts. I do still um, like him. For those of you who are fans of The Battery, the only piece of IMDb trivia for this movie is this. During the karaoke scene, Henry Zabrowski's character Wade is singing Anthem from the Already Defeated by Rock Plaza Central. This song was also featured in the film The Battery. Both films were written and directed by Jeremy Gardner, who is has leading roles in both films. Most notably, Gardner's character Ben in The Battery has a very memorable scene in which he sings and dances with a booze bottle in one hand and a pistol in the other to the same song, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. But in doing research for this episode, I read an article, a couple articles that I just wanted to share um, because I think even if this movie doesn't work for you, which again, I think is fair, um, I hope we can all agree that like Jeremy Gardner is a, a person that we should pay attention to. Like he clearly has kind of interesting ideas and can write, mm-hmm. uh, compelling characters, whether or not you think the, the whole kind of works out for you. So, uh, and he I read can an definitely interview. play a leading man. No one is saying anything to dissuade oh, I that found here. him so, so charming in this movie. My, um, I was watching it on, I rented it on Amazon and... The scene, once she comes back and she does this whole monologue, they're sitting in the doorway waiting for the monster. They're both wearing green. She gives this whole monologue about how, you know, all she ever wanted in her life was to get out of the small town. And now she's, it's 10 years and she's never left. And she's worried that because he is a hunter, like he's bored with her now and she's not enough and he doesn't look at her the same way. And there's this, his response is like, to say, baby. And my Amazon kept fucking up, so it paused right before that line, and I had to watch that line, like, five times, and I was like, oh, Jeremy Gardner, I get it. Like, I get it. You're delivering the line. We're all here for it. Um, But I wanted to read a quote. Um, They interviewed him and his co-director and really good friend Christian Stella in Dread Central when this movie first uh, premiered at film festivals. And he's sort of talking about his writing process, and I thought that... For you, who uh, you are also a creative person, I thought you might find this interesting. So he says, my process is weird. It always starts with an image that I can't get out of my head. For the battery, it was just two guys walking down a road and then I built a movie from there. And it ended up being about friendship and about being stuck with people you don't necessarily love, but they're all you have. This one started with a couch in front of a door. For some reason, I could not get that image out of my head. And then we did this experiment where I said, Christian, who is his co-director, I'm just going to send you three pages that you don't know what they are. And then you write three pages and I won't know what they're going to be. And we'll go back and forth. So for the beginning of this movie, he and his writing partner were like each writing three pages of script and going back and forth. And Mm -hmm. I guess eventually his writing partner was like, he said, I quit because the characters started talking all rednecky in a different dialect. And I was like, oh, I can't write rednecks. <laughs> um, but like, I love, I think that's a really cool idea. Like, um, I have a client who is a painter and he talks about how sometimes like he will wake up with an image in his head and he has to draw it. And I love the idea that Jeremy Gardner is like, I get these pictures in my head and I have to like, and I build a story out from there of like what 
why would we be looking at that? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is very cool. Yeah. Um, so that's neat. And then I also wanted to just really quickly plug, I also read an article about Jeremy Gardner in Haven Magazine. Um, so fun fact, Jeremy Gardner, uh, either as of August 1st of the, of last year, was working at a brewery called Grove Roots Brewing. So if you're a fan of his, head over there, see if he's the bartender. Um, In what world, Sophie? <laughs> but, but right when the when the virus is over. But um, <coughs> but his his uh, co-director Christian Stella is one of his best friends from uh, from childhood. They grew up together in Florida, and they started making movies together in high school. When they were in their early 20s, Christian's dad got a job for the Food Network and was going to move to Connecticut. And uh, Jeremy Gardner is like, I'm just going to go with you guys. So he moved there with them because he wanted to try to, like, get a job acting. So he would, like, go into New York City to audition. Meanwhile, uh, Christian was, like, taking photos for his dad's cookbooks. So he got to be a really good uh, photographer. So when Jeremy Gardner wanted to make the battery, he's like, hey, uh, can your camera take video? Like, is that a thing that you feel like you could do? So when they made the battery, it was a five-person crew with a $6,000 budget. Um, And they just, like, went into the woods. And then that movie premiered at the Telluride Film Festival in Amsterdam in 2012, which is when he met... Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who are two of my other favorite indie directors. Justin Benson plays the sheriff in this movie. Um, and their production company, Rustic Films, produced this movie. That's really cool. So, boom, boom, boom. I'm just, I mean, I feel like I totally, I'm not going to begrudge anyone for whom this movie doesn't work. It really she says works that, like, for me. She's putting that out there to the audience, but she's also putting that out there for me. I am. Um, I think this movie is definitely not for everyone. And I think it's okay for this to not be your cup of tea. But that being said, like this movie, I think was made to be a thing I would like. Mm -hmm. I find Jeremy Gardner super charming. Um, I find his style of filmmaking very charming. It also has as its core cast, like tons of other actors and directors and comedians that I really like and don't get to see in, stuff very often right. so like i think had this movie been acted by different people i would probably be where you are you know what i mean like yeah i think this movie for me is is done a great favor by having the the cast and the backstory that it does yeah um but i'm curious hannah out of uh, five bloody marys i'm gonna shield my face so you don't have to look into my blue eyes what would you <laughs> give this movie so um i toyed around a bit with trying to decide if I was going to give it a two or a three. Um, so I decided I'm going to give it a three um, because I do think that Jeremy Gardner is a very talented writer and I love what he does with very little for the scare factor. Um, but other than that, it really just didn't work for me. So I would give it um, two Bloody Marys and a glass of peanut wine. Mm, I think that's perfect. So, yeah, that's great. Um, I think that I would give this movie 
four Bloody Marys out of five. And I think... The, <laughs> I think I'm going to give it three Bloody Marys and a broken bear trap. There you go. I wanted, to, I really wanted to go three Bloody Marys and a cup of cat litter because I loved, we didn't talk about, but I loved like Wade's monologue about how he thought it was just a cat. Mm-hmm. He was like, it's a panther. And Jeremy Gardner's like, have you ever seen a panther? Yeah. Has anyone that you know ever seen a panther? And he's like, okay, well, your girlfriend's cat got out. So probably it got doused in radioactive chemicals. And now that's the monster. It just wants to come home. Yeah. I like, also love when he was talking about how cats eat all the soft parts first, which is really funny especially because my boyfriend has a cat and now that we're quarantined every time i'm away from the house for more than like 10 hours he's like what's gonna happen to me if i die and i'm like well yeah. i'm gonna find you looking like i think he says you look like shrieking skull after oh all god he's all the soft i can't tissue. believe <laughs> actually i'm gonna revoke my rating and say i would give this movie three bloody marys and one what did he call it? Gorilla diarrhea, which is when Wade dumps all of the stuff uh, off the bar mat into a glass. That scene is Henry Zabrowski's crowning achievement from this movie. That's like, really funny. And he says something like, oh, crap, I can't remember what he said it tastes like, but whatever he said he, he said it tastes like was solid. It was so good. And I love that, like, Hank, Hank is like, Jeremy Gardner's character is like, you have, you're a father. You have kids. He's like, exactly. That's why I'm allowed to do this. Free is free. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, I'm very glad. I think, excuse me, of all the movies to disagree on, like this has so much cool stuff to talk about that it didn't I had a blast. Hurt, hurt I hope you had too fun much. too. No. Okay. No, not at all. As long as you still love Jeremy Gardner, we're, we're fine. Um, Okay. So I want to share. Can wear a baseball cap. He sure can. Ooh. And also, there aren't that many men who can wear like a very loose, not even a crew neck. You don't like that? No, I don't like that. I like it. There's what literally you call it? haven't you seen that commercial where they're like, "Is your V neck turned into a U neck?" But his, but they weren't V necks. They were just crew neck shirts that were very loose. Is that? Is that what it was? <laughs> I don't know. Yes. It didn't have a point. And it didn't go down. It went, like, out. Yeah, that's I the like point. When you a... wear a V-neck so much that it gets so fucked up, it becomes a U-neck. Okay, well, I liked seeing his collarbones is all I'm trying to say. Okay. Well. <laughs> it's is hilarious. Is because you cause... broke your collarbone and now you're like, ooh, look at that collarbone. <laughs> Ooh, that man's got a sexy collarbone. I bet he's never broken it once in his life. Ooh, look at that solid collarbone. Ooh, uh, look at that clavicle. Oh, God, (laughs) let me see your rock-hard clavicle. I'm going to take a moment to plug the song Clavicle. Wait, rock-hard clavicle is my band name, (laughs) bitch. Okay, I'm going to take a moment to let all of you erase that out of your brain, and you should. (coughs) Go rub one out to a clavicle of your favorite person. Wow, I was going to say you should check out the song Clavicle by Alkaline Trio, which is like such a beautiful, 
uh, love song that I feel like Jeremy Gardner would endorse. Okay. The chorus of that song is, I want to wake up naked next to you, kissing the curve of your clavicle. There you go. I had a friend in high school. um, If you're listening, (laughs) shout out to Chaz, where we went through this phase um, where we would like, like put our lips over our teeth and bite each other's clavicles when we would hug. Ugh. Ugh. I don't like that. So weird. So weird. But, you know, give it a shot. Let me know. It could be very very erotic or just like the most ultimately, um, what's that word for when you like someone? Platonic. The most platonic hug of all time. Just gumming, say, gumming someone else's bone, like neck bones. Oh, 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 oh. I, ugh, the, ew, ugh. It's um, one of my favorite things from, if anyone has not watched the show Detroiters, which everybody should, and fuck all of you who didn't watch it, and that's why it got canceled. But also, there was a security guard. There's a security guard on that show who always com- like comments on people's necks, and it was so funny, like... Every time he would do it so well where he'd just be like, oh, look at that neck. Like, or he'd be like, ooh, your neck is looking real good today, Sam. Ooh, look at that neck. And it, like, killed me every time. Like, such a weird part of someone's body to be like, ooh, yeah. Ooh, give me some neck. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of my evening, like, trying to protect my clavicle from people's gums. And I'm the only person in my apartment. (laughs) That's not true. There's a cardboard cut out of Bob Ross. That is true. You don't know what he does like, at night. Like Bob Ross rah, 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 rah. tries to bite my clavicles. You're going to wake up and he's um, got a, you got a paper cuts all over your clavicle. Be like, <laughs> what? So this week for In Ladier News, as you guys know, we've been kind of uh, stretching the definition of news. And Hannah will be super excited to know that this year for this year, this week for In Ladier News, I'm plugging an episode of our unofficial sister podcast, Switchblade Sisters, which I talked about so much on our first couple months that Hannah almost <laughs> disowned me. Um, but there was an episode released in early April um, where directa, director Tyresha <laughs> Directa. Um, Tyresha Poe, who directed Sela and the Spades, talks about the film Brick by Ryan Johnson. Now, the reason that this is in ladier news for us is that Tyresha Poe was involved in the still photography for The Fits, which we covered. Um, She's a young woman from West Philly and has her debut film out now. It is, I think, available to rent for free on Amazon. I have not gotten a chance to watch it yet, um, but I listened to the episode of Switchblade Sisters this morning And it sounds fascinating. And she was a really interesting interview. So if you are interested, you can listen to episode 127 of Switchblade Sisters, where Tyresha Poe and April Wolf discuss Ryan Johnson's Brick, as well as her new movie, Sella and the Spades. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at 28dayslady underscore er. You can also email us. 28 days later at gmail.com. Hannah, do you have anything else you want to add for the week? Um, just that people should always pee after sex. And don't burp in your face mask.